Jack Jenkins. Yeah. You are the religion and politics reporter at Religion News Service. So I have to ask, just how often do you use that joke? You know, where you say, for my job, I literally cover the two topics you're never supposed to talk about in polite company. <laughs> yeah, it, it happens more often than I would like to admit. But in my defense, people sometimes think it's funny. I know. I, too, have employed it many times myself on airplanes. Oh, but see, when you use it on an airplane, that means somebody wants to talk to you about religion and politics for the rest of the flight. And then by the time it lands, like the whole coach section has in the midst of a theological debate. So do not recommend <laughs> on point. Fair enough. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City. I'm Roxy Stone, and this week I'm joined by my colleague, RNS national reporter Jack Jenkins, for a special episode in the run-up to this year's midterm elections. Welcome to the show, Jack. Thanks for having me. I wanted to bring Jack on the show because it's midterm season, truly the spookiest season of them all. And this year, I've noticed, as I'm sure all of you have noticed, that everyone seems to be talking about Christian nationalism. The phrase is in the air. I'm not just talking about within like religion reporting circles where you would expect for everyone to be talking about how religion impacts the vote in all kinds of ways. But we're talking 60 Minutes has Southern Baptist Convention President Bart Barber on to talk about it. The New York Times talks to another SBC leader, Al Mohler, about it. Al Jazeera has a whole segment with scholars Anthea Butler and Kristen Cobes Dumay and Amanda Tyler. Honestly, it's pretty wild. And I don't remember this concept ever really being discussed in this way before. I mean, sure. Every election cycle, everyone wants to talk about how will the evangelicals vote. But this seems to be something different. Which, side note, I do want to come back to later on in the episode because I do think there is an important distinction to be made between white evangelicalism and white Christian nationalism. A distinction that I don't think is always being made right now. But anyway, Religion News Service and Jack Jenkins in particular have been covering Christian nationalism for years since this iteration of it was pretty nascent or, well, at least more subtle because, of course, none of this is new. It's just maybe went underground for a while and now it's back front and center. So, Jack, when do you first remember the term Christian nationalism sort of bubbling up in your research and reporting? So I appreciate this question because it is tied to a very specific memory. Back in 2017, I was in a cabin in West Virginia and I was listening to Trump's inaugural address. The Bible tells us how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And I was listening to it on an old wooden radio set in the corner of this cabin living room. And I remember he made several explicit religious appeals during that speech that kind of went beyond the presidential rhetoric that we often call civil religion, just appeals to scripture in a broad way. And instead, he was kind of really framing um, the United States as this religious nation protected by God. And most importantly... We will be protected by God. And I remember like whispering aloud to myself, 
that's Christian nationalism. You used the phrase. Yeah. I think it was, I thought I was clever for like thinking <laughs> of this term. And then I went back to work the next day or whatever and, you know, typed it into the Google machine and it came back that turns out there's been a lot of research of this over the years. And in fact, I wasn't anywhere close to the first person to kind of use that term to describe the movement that was encircling um, Trump. Interestingly, the first person I could find who was, you know, talking about it in reference to the rise of Trump in 2016 and 2017 was actually a conservative writer. Um, but it obviously has an even longer history than that. You know, in the contemporary era, you can go back to 2006, 2004, or even way, way, way further back in American history than that. But you would link the current iteration of the movement specifically with Donald Trump, his campaign, his presidency, or were those in parallel? Were they sort of feeding on each other, but not synonymous? See all of the above. Um, <laughs> so, you know, Christian nationalism um, obviously predates Trump. You know, there are historians have talked about its iterations back at the founding era, after the founding era. There have been extremist iterations like the Ku Klux Klan that is, has a very extreme white supremacist vision and that's Christian nationalist. And then, of course, the religious right of the 80s and 90s kind of had its own versions of this. But the kind that Trump gave birth to was a little different and a little weird. You know, a key concept of the Trump's 2016 campaign, as well as his tenure in office, was this group of primarily evangelical Christian leaders that he surrounded himself with. And I used the term weird earlier in a broad sense, but really these were a group of faith leaders that had not necessarily been at the forefront of political discourse. These weren't necessarily, with a few exceptions, the head figures of the religious right. Right. I'm thinking of that picture with Paula White and Sean Foyt famously right. touching right. his jacket. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of pictures, frankly, from this era. And Paula White in particular, or Paula White Kane, was an interesting figure because she was a prosperity gospel preacher with a Pentecostal flair in Florida that hadn't really been involved in politics at all in any sort of pronounced sense. She had a you know robust following, but she didn't transition that into sort of you know explicit political activism. But she turned out to be one of the closest religious confidants of Trump during his campaign and presidency. She ended up being a White House official, and as she kind of rose into power with him, she actually ended up you know adopting a Christian nationalist bent and Christian nationalist rhetoric. But the key thing that was true about this group of faith leaders and Paula White is that at the center of their version of Christian nationalism was often Trump himself. Well, he's not presidential. Thank goodness. Yeah. Thank goodness. Yeah. Thank goodness. Yeah. And I mean that with all due respect, because in other words, he's not a polished politician. In other words, he's authentically, whether people like it or not, has been raised up by God because God says that he raises up and places all people in places right. of authority. Yeah. It is God that raises up a king. It is God that sets one down. And so when you fight against the plan of God, you're fighting against the hand of God. And therefore you go... And well, arguably the most explicit example of this, of this kind of Trump centered Christian nationalism from that period came from uh, Texas pastor Robert Jeffress, you know, Southern Baptist minister. He was this advisor to Trump, just a true Trump supporter, a stalwart defender of him in public. He was actually the pastor that de delivered the sermon to Trump on his inauguration day before he gave that inaugural address. But later that year, there was a 4th of July celebration. 
and he ended up lending out his own choir to help celebrate the 4th of July with Trump. moment where with the president in the audience, Robert Jeffress's choir was positioned in front of a giant American flag. And they began belting out this hymn-like ballad. Now, pastors involving themselves in politics, this is not particularly new. It has a pretty storied tradition on both sides of the aisle. You know, you think of the civil rights leaders, many of them were pastors. The black church has a long history of political activism. Of course, you have the rise of the moral majority on the right at the end of the 20th century with leaders like Jerry Falwell Sr., institutions like Focus on the Family. So what's new about this? Is there anything new about it? Did Trump's evangelical advisory board feel like something different? So, yes, in the sense that they brought some new spirits, as it were, to this constellation of ideologies that can be enveloped by Christian nationalism. As you know, there are older versions here and even some iterations of the religious right back in the 80s and 90s, you know, like Jerry Falwell Sr. were pretty explicit. You know, Jerry Falwell Sr. preached a sermon about how America was a Christian nation, how we should teach our kids that idea. But what kind of came with Trump's rise were all these aspects of Trumpism. Right. So that includes the QAnon movement that was rooted in conspiracy theories. It was a core conspiracy theory that gave birth to infinite other conspiracy theories. It was this authoritarian bent and Christian nationalism became integrated into those, you know, those elements, the conspirituality, as it were, that some refer to it as um, and that really huge attachment to a central figure. I remember the closing line of that first piece I wrote about Christian nationalism was that a revival of Christian nationalism was on the horizon with Trump as the high priest. Uh, And that was a really interesting shift from some of the ways that that had been expressed previously is that it was attached to him, that this Christian nation would be materialized and made manifest, not simply through the prayers of the believers, but through the actions of Donald Trump himself. And that was actually part of the rhetoric. People were expressing that Donald Trump was like, a messiah-like figure in this way? Some people, I'm sure, refer to him specifically as a messiah-like figure. More often, we heard descriptions of him in biblical terms to kind of explain away some of his, what otherwise could be perceived as shortcomings, right? The way he spoke, the dodgy past he has, you know, bragging about sexual assault, what have you. You had multiple people who talked to explain that by saying that, one, Trump had been anointed by God. Um, They suggested that before and after he was elected. But two, part of the reason that he was anointed by God is, you know, these political figures of the Bible, such as um, Cyrus or King David, that he was someone who may not be a perfect person, but was being used by God to create a godly America in the same way that these people from the Hebrew Bible had been used in the past. And so he was seen as this central figure who could actualize these sorts of things. And that both was discussed in you know, biblical rhetoric by leaders such as 
Lance Wanlau, as well as political rhetoric, where you know you would hear evangelical leaders and other conservative Christians say, "Look, he's going to put three conservative justices on the Supreme Court, or at least some of them, and that brings us closer." to our goals. And so he could make this religious right dream and this Christian nationalist dream real if he were allowed to be in office and remain in office. And I think it's important to note if the idea really was for those Supreme Court justices to end up on the court, Trump accomplished that goal. Well, and therein lies something of a rub, right? He lost an election. And how do you... (laughs) Well, we've seen... (laughs) how it worked for people to try to synchronize a loss of the election with an ideology around someone as an anointed chosen of God. In other words, it doesn't work. The election becomes faulty, rigged, which is where I would like to turn to now. You were reporting from and near the Capitol on both January 5th and 6th, the day before what has become referred to as our insurrection. And there was a lot of Christian symbolism and rhetoric on January 6th. We know that. But I really want to focus today on January 5th, which has gotten much less attention, obviously, but which I think perhaps holds a lot of clues when it comes to Christian nationalism. So tell me about January 5th. Tell me about the Jericho March. So on January 5th, I went down to the Capitol to cover this thing referred to as the Jericho March. And the subtext here was that since the beginning of the Stop the Steal movement that had been bursting onto the scene ever since Trump and his supporters started rejecting the results of the 2020 election, Christian nationalism was subsumed within that. They would open with very overt Christian nationalist prayers, you know, discussing a Christian nation of one that they wanted to protect. Um, and then this got kind of more literal um, as the as the movement went along where different activists started hosting what were called Jericho marches. And that included events in states like Pennsylvania, which was, of course, one of the main states where the election results were contested, where activists would process around the state capitol there and, you know, they would blow shofars. And while they were doing that, they were hoping that in a spiritual sense, that the same way the Israelites won that battle and the walls came tumbling down, that the election results would metaphorically Mm -hmm. come tumbling down and Trump would then be declared president instead of Joe Biden. And there had been a few of these events. And when I got there on January 5th, this was one of the events that was going to process around the United States Capitol doing this. And there was actually plans to do it again the next day on January 5th. Six. I remember. I remember as your editor sitting at my desk safely tucked away, receiving photos from you of people with these very striking long shofars and American flag clothing. That was from the fifth. Yeah. And I, I remember being pretty alarmed by what was happening the day before. It was an interesting collage of Trumpism around the Capitol that day, right? Like you had... QAnon events happening alongside these Christian nationalist events happening alongside more, you know, MAGA specific events, Make America Great Again events. And they all just became one event very quickly. And because they felt comfortable with each other. And one of the women I interviewed who was leading a prayer there said that she had been drawn there by multiple different movements is roughly how she described it. Hmm. And then, you know, proceeded to describe what drew her there as this defense of a Christian nation as she saw it, which she said had been written into our founding documents. So 
later, I saw this group, you know, marching around the Capitol, making their way towards this stage where there would be more events and more speeches and, and sermons, quite frankly, delivered. And they were donned in all of this Trump gear, you know, Trump branded flags. There were flags branded with America first and holding signs that said, you know, Donald versus Goliath. Thank God for Donald Trump and holding giant images of Trump's face. But as they were marching, in addition to some of them holding shofars and blowing shofars, you know, again, this imitation of the biblical story of the battle of Jericho, where they blew those shofars at the end before they won the battle. Um, they also burst into a rendition of how great is our God. Um, this, you know, praise right. music that was, um, remains popular in evangelical circles. And while they're holding Trump's face, it was a very interesting image and moment in American history, as far as I was concerned. And so you, so you have these folks, the Jericho March folks, but you've also got some, as you said, that this was a meeting of a lot of different groups representing a number of different approaches to Christian nationalism, if you will, um, including the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, who are not necessarily known for their Christian nationalism or maybe weren't as much before January 6th, but now that seems to have been sort of adopted or co-opted by those groups. Yeah, there was an interesting trend in the ramp up to January 6th where, you know, extremist groups kind of increasingly embraced um, religious expression in general and Christian nationalism in particular. And that was a bit of a shift. I mean, Christian nationalism has been a part of right-wing extremist groups in the United States throughout American history. You know, again, we mentioned the KKK, but it hadn't necessarily been at the forefront of some of these more contemporary groups like the Proud Boys. But you know, many people have seen you know, the video of Proud Boys praying actually before they led the Vanguard attack on January 6th against the Capitol. But they also, there was footage that I found of them praying on December 12th, when a few weeks earlier. And that it was the evening of December 11th, the night before December 12th, where they knelt together. God, we gather here today in these hollow grounds where our country was founded. And after one of them basically gave a more traditional evangelical testimony. We go to war tomorrow with Antifa because we know they're the enemy. Yeah. We know they're coming for our children. They're coming for our freedom. They're coming for our constitution. Explaining what drew him country. to faith and what they're drew him to be a proud culture. boy. But we are the counterculture. And God will watch over us as we rise. And God will you know, watch after over that, us one of their out. number grabbed a bullhorn and led them in a very intense, very passionate prayer mm -hmm. that included them literally shouting, we love you, God, to the sky. Tomorrow's a beautiful day. I want everybody to watch over everybody that they're standing next to. Brothers, keep it, brother. I want us all to give it up to God right now and tell God, we love you, God! We love you, God! And he hears us. He hears us. He hears us because we're gathered here today and this energy is immense. And he knows we're gathered here in the right reason. And he knows we're gathered here in the name of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of the Son and the Holy Spirit. We will not I have heard you say before that it's impossible to understand what happened on January 6th without understanding what happened in D.C. on December 11th. Yeah. So, you know, I think what gets lost in a lot of the narratives around January 6th is, you know, there was this really 
intense buildup to that moment where on December 11th and on December 12th, there were these events in D.C. that were part of the Stop the Steal movement. And December 12th in particular, there was a massive event known as the you know, another Jericho March event that was less marching and more of a rally. And it included you know speeches from a variety of different people. But that evening was when the Proud Boys marauded through the streets of D.C. and began tearing Black Lives Matter signs off of churches here in D.C. and in one case, lighting one on fire. And so, you know, part of the subtext for my reporting on the Jericho March on January 5th was that I was simultaneously in that same story reporting on how all of these different faith communities in D.C. were bracing themselves for the return of these groups to the city. I talked about how one church right down the street from the Capitol had locked up their furniture, their outdoor furniture, and removed loose bricks from their patio out of concern that they could be used in violence at the Capitol that day. Even going back a little further than that, you know, before Trump lost the election in June of 2020, when there was the clearing of Lafayette Square. The infamous Bible photo op. Exactly. And, and again, in that instance, it was clergy who were in support of the racial justice demonstrators who were also cleared before Trump walked over to that church they were working at and held up a Bible and did that. But along and along, you see these moments of conflict and violence in Washington, D.C., surrounding rhetoric of Christian nationalism, dating back at least to that June 1st, 2020 Bible moment to that December 12th Proud Boys moment to January 6th. Okay, there definitely have been plenty of cries of, hey, that's not Christian nationalism. That's that's just patriotism. And I do think that there are plenty of legitimate concerns that these days way too many things are getting labeled as Christian nationalism and in turn weaponized. So I'm going to list a few activities for you. You tell me, is it Christian nationalism or isn't it? A Christian standing for the national anthem at a sports game? Probably not. Um, but under certain circumstances, it could certainly be interpreted that way. Okay. Uh, what about flying a Christian flag and an American flag from your deck? Not necessarily. What about at a church? That is sending some different signals. But again, not necessarily. A lot of churches did that for a long time and did not necessarily advocate for a Christian nation. Okay. Okay. What about, and I'm not making this up, I have literally seen this, a t-shirt with a swole Jesus breaking himself off the cross wrapped in an American flag. Okay, that one's that one's kind of pushing whether or not you're being explicit about Christian nationalism. Also, I want to see that shirt. Christian nationalism, maybe, maybe not. Tacky? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> a politician praying at a political rally or event. Again, not necessarily. I would really be interested about what the prayer is, though. All right, so it's a lot of caveats, basically. I'm thinking part of this is maybe still something of a murky definition of what Christian nationalism is. We're all still kind of grasping at a firm box to put this in. So I guess simply, is there an agreed upon definition of what 
Christian nationalism is? I think agreed upon would be, <laughs> it's, it's a descriptor of a movement, right? And those are things that we always disagree on. You called someone a liberal or a progressive. Those are disputed terms in our country. Same if you called someone a conservative. And Christian nationalism is no different. There is some dispute around the edges there. I also should note that there is even some debate about what to call Christian nationalism. Um, some scholars and activists actually use the term white Christian nationalism as a way to note that the ideology not only tends to be embraced by a disproportionately white subset of the U.S. population, but also that its policy proposals that kind of come out of this movement tend to disproportionately benefit white people, and that some iterations and expressions just you know overlap um, overtly with uh, unapologetic white supremacist ideologies. And context really matters. That's why when I was saying not necessarily to those things, a lot of those things in isolation wouldn't necessarily advocate for a Christian nation at all. But in certain contexts, it can send different kinds of signals. So my operating definition of Christian nationalism is the belief that America was founded as a Christian nation. And actually, more importantly, that either it should remain as such or that it's deviated from its godly or Christian founding and re return to it. And that call to action, the desire to make America a Christian nation is the active ingredient in any recipe for Christian nationalism. Okay, so we've got a definition that is sort of a conflation of American exceptionalism with Christian exceptionalism and merging those together that a true godly American nation is a Christian nation and we need to actively work to keep it that way. Yes. And, and I should note, this is where it gets complicated because there are actually many different Christian nationalisms, right? It's a movement with a variety of expressions throughout history and even right now. Trump actually kind of appealed to it broadly while running for office and as president, which was a way that kind of united different camps and different iterations of this movement. But those camps often don't agree with each other about what a Christian nation should be or look like or believe. Say more about that. What If you could sort of create a taxonomy of these different Christian nationalisms, what are some of them and, and who kind of falls within those? Camps. Yeah, and I should note that there are scholars and experts much smarter than I who could probably give you, you know, two hours long definitions of these varieties. But you've talked ones. to all of them. <laughs> yeah. So I'll mention not all versions of Christian nationalism, but some of the most pertinent ones um, that I've run into and the, some of the most vocal ones. So for instance, one of the iterations that we talked about earlier, these kind of cadre of evangelical leaders that sort of surrounded Trump during his rise, that's actually an interesting group because they were stalwart supporters of Trump during his tenure. They were attached to Trump and their versions of Christian nationalism were very much attached to his rise and his presidency. They've actually broken a lot of them from other iterations of Christian nationalism since Trump has kind of been removed from the public sphere, and particularly since he's been removed from Twitter. This group champions a Christian nation with Trump as head of it, but many of people in that cadre have pushed for um, the, an embrace of vaccines, for instance, which has not been the case with another cadre of Christian nationalists that have kind of emerged 
around January 6th and the aftermath of January 6th. I'm thinking of people like Tennessee Pastor Greg Locke, who's gotten a lot of attention for preaching against um, lockdown mandates and against masks and against vaccines. He's really kind of embraced some of the QAnon conspiracy theory elements there. And, And there's this whole kind of wing there that got really popular. They had their own events throughout 2021 going around the country, kind of uh, events that push back on vaccine mandates and also pushing conspiracy theories about Democrats and Joe Biden kind of has operated outside of that other iteration. And how are those groups expressing Christian nationalism as opposed to just being anti-vaxxers? who don't like Biden. This was a fascinating question. I would have had the same question, which is why, like, why is there an American flag with a cross on it advertising this event about anti-vaccine sentiment, right? And you go there and you watch some of the videos from some of these speakers at these events. And for them, this is not an incongruous thing. America is a Christian nation. We should protect it. Freedom is really important. And they use terms like medical freedom, which are actually, you know, taken from the anti-vaccine movement that predated Trumpism, then drop in some conspiracy theories about vaccines. Um, Yeah, I One of the speakers, for instance, who was a prominent anti-vaccine distributor of disinformation during the pandemic, Sherry Tenpenny, you know, talked about how don't you think Jesus could take care of you if Jesus can heal the lepers? Don't you think Jesus can take care of you? Why do you need this vaccine that she made? unfounded allegations of it being uniquely dangerous. And so this crew kind of has emerged as its own kind of subculture. And I should note that Doug Mastriano, the gubernatorial candidate in Pennsylvania, part of the reason he got famous in that state enough to run for governor was that he was very active in this anti-vaccine, anti-mask, anti-lockdown movement in that state that also was conflated with Christian nationalism. His campaign slogan, walk as free people, was something he did. He talked about during his anti-mask, anti-lockdown advocacy during the the height of the pandemic. But it's also a reference to the Gospel of John. And so all of those things can kind of conflate at once for these people. Now, I do think there has been in the popular imagination, the popular secular imagination, if you will, or big media, whatever you want to call it. Um, I do think there's been a bit of a conflation this election cycle between white evangelicalism writ large and the evangelical vote and Christian nationalism. And I've seen people beginning to talk about them almost synonymously. Do you think that's fair? Is that true? How might we draw a distinction between those camps? I know it's not fair or true, but how are we going to draw a distinction between those camps? Right. I think people often root that overgeneralization in a mathematical reality, which is that port for Christian nationalism, uh, a lot of polls show us is highest in white evangelical circles compared to a lot of most other major religious groups with a couple uh, Hispanic and Latino Protestants actually also show um, a lot of support for elements of Christian nationalism as well. But white evangelicals, if you go to one of these events, are often disproportionately represented in that crowd. And then, of course, people often talk about how 80 to 81 percent of white evangelicals supported Trump in 2016. So it's kind of tacked on as a part of, you know, the support for Trump. But but supporting Trump isn't necessarily Christian nationalism. Right. And and I think to your point, you know, when you really kind of get into the nitty gritty of, of a lot of this polling data, you find is that to be a white evangelical is not to be a supporter of Christian nationalism. And even to express some sympathy with Christian nationalism is not the same as somebody who might want to like storm a U.S. Capitol because they believe God told them to be there. Right. So there's a spectrum of belief here. In addition, to that. Within evangelical circles, there's been a longstanding resistance to Christian nationalism, very vocally so. 
and it comes out of uncommon circles. And the story that gets told often is about Russell Moore, who, you know, used to run the political arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. When I started my career as a religion reporter, this was supposed to be like a card carrying member of the religious right was Russell Moore. Right. But then he became an ardent critic of Trump's rise and not just of Trump, but also of Christian nationalism. And while he no longer even attends the Southern Baptist Church, Moore doesn't, he still would identify as an evangelical. And that is still... Well, he is now the editor of the flagship evangelical magazine in the country, Christianity Today. Right. Where he recently wrote a column denouncing Christian nationalism. Exactly. And that group is well represented. And in addition to that, I think it is important to note that, you know, if you were there, watch these people on January 6th, yeah, there were a lot of white evangelicals there, but there were also, there's an ample representation of Catholics, right? You know, you were talking about the taxonomy earlier, you know, within the extremist wing of Christian nationalism includes some overtly Catholic versions of Christian nationalism. Nick Fuentes, a white nationalist head of America First, is actually called for a Catholic Taliban rule of the United States, right? Wow. Yeah. And, you know, his people wearing branded gear from his group were among the first to storm into the Senate chamber on January 6th. And then they're not as well represented, but you also have some members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who express versions of Christian nationalism that Mm -hmm. are attached to Trumpism. And you'll find it in mainline groups and even some non-Christian candidates who have attached themselves to the Trump movement who have also explicitly stated that they support Christian nationalism. And they, they haven't necessarily won their primaries of late, but it's interesting how broad the spectrum can get when you're talking about the folks who are out front supporting this ideology and identity. I do want to talk more about this year's midterms, but we're going to take a quick break first. After the break, the influence of Christian nationalism on the candidates and campaigns for the 2022 midterms and how some have come to embrace Christian nationalism as an identity. The church is supposed to direct the government. The government is not supposed to direct the church. That is not how our founding fathers intended it. And I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk. That's not in the constitution. It was in a stinking letter and it means nothing like what they say it does. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. With the best religion journalists in the world, obviously. Check out all of our coverage of Christian nationalism, the midterm elections, the religious left, and more at religionnews.com. And of course, you can find all of Jack's many, many, many bylines there. Just please don't use any of my articles to pick a fight at the family dinner table. Or do, but like in a nice way? (laughs) And if you like what we're doing at Saved by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or a review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show. Or shoot us an email at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We'd love to hear from you. Jack, we've spent a lot of time covering the emergence of Christian nationalism as a contemporary movement in today's political landscape. But... I think if I were to pinpoint what has felt to me like the biggest shift over the past maybe two years is that Christian nationalism went from being a sort of descriptive phrase or a label for a type of activity or belief to a political identity. 
Taylor Hansen here with Next News Network, and I am here with the one and only beautiful Marjorie Taylor Greene. Say hello to everyone, Marjorie. Oh, hi, or everyone. to put it another I'm way, it went from you, that's Christian so nationalism to you you're a Christian First off nationalist. Being, what do you think is the primary focus of the GOP going into 2022? What should it be opposed to what it is it? Oh, wow. That, that's a tough question because there's a lot of things that should be. I think and probably really as significantly, once it became an identity, there are those who eagerly embraced it and are now proudly flaunting it. We need to be the party of nationalism. And I'm a Christian and I say it proudly. We should be Christian nationalists. And when Republicans learn that's right. It's actually been a fascinating thing to watch over the last year and a half. For a long time, the label Christian nationalism was kind of seen as bad. Nationalism as a term was seen as bad. Um, a lot in, in popular discourse for a long time there. And people, you know, you might find support for Christian nationalism in certain religious right contexts, but often there was at least lip service to the idea that a lot of Christians were present at America's founding, but it wasn't supposed to be a theocracy, um, in part because all the different Christian groups didn't like each other and, you know, were fighting and sometimes murdering each other over what it meant to be a Christian. But what I thought was really fascinating is you know, even that was still kind of true when I was you know, doing my first reporting on this back in 2017 and what have you. But right leading up to January 6th and in the aftermath of January 6th, you know, suddenly the support for versions of Christian nationalism moved from the fringes onto the main stages and pulpits and then- And the cover you know, what, of books. And the cover of books. And extremists in particular became the, some of the first to say, not only do I agree with the sentiment of Christian nationalism, I'm going to identify as a Christian nationalist. Nick Fuentes, this white nationalist and the head of the group America First, he and Andrew Torba, who's the head of the alternative social media website Gab, which is known as a haven for extremism, and, and Torba is known for sharing anti-Semitic messages. They both began identifying as Christian nationalists and sharing Christian nationalist memes on their various platforms. And Torba has a recent book. Yeah. On Christian nationalism, encouraging people to be Christian nationalists, you know, advocating for this as an idea. And he's, he's he, he told me that he wanted to send it to every church in America to try to encourage them to ascribe to his particular brand of Christian nationalism, which is actually differs from many others. Meanwhile, Christian nationalism began to fuse with anti-vaccine sentiment and opposition to COVID lockdown measures we mentioned earlier. And, you know, as we're moving from January 6th throughout um, 2021 and into 2022, you know, we had members of America First that were participating in anti-abortion rallies, chanting Christ is King and holding crucifixes. Um, and they were making powerful allies. You know, even if you weren't calling yourself a Christian nationalist, you were like Lauren Boebert or actually also Doug Mastriano, who were denying that there should be or that it even exists, a separation of church and state. And so suddenly prominent politicians and prominent candidates, you know, leading up to this midterm were either invoking strongly ideals and beliefs held essential to a lot of Christian nationalists or just saying that they were a Christian nationalist. We're losing our country because we fall behind. You don't want to mix politics and religion, separation of church and state. Like, like, uh, like anyone who says that, show me the Constitution where it says it. It's not in there. It's, Let's it's talk about Mastriano. The way it's written by the federal Constitution, of course, is that the federal government cannot have any rules or restrictions. He's on one of a number of candidates for midterms that have a Christian nationalism flair, if you will, to their campaigns. They hear that catchy phrase from the left, separation of church and state. 
Well, it's not in there. We have freedom of religion, not freedom from religion. So walk victorious. In what ways have you seen Christian nationalism influencing this particular election? Or do you see these midterms as a sort of, I don't know, a bellwether or a testing ground for how Christian nationalism will play in 2024? I'm actually fascinated by this particular question. I, I obsess over it a lot because the Mastriano, for the record, rejects the term Christian nationalist, but does in- invoke a lot of elements of Christian nationalism. And his candidacy in particular kind of seems like a triumph of this version of Christian nationalism that, as mentioned, had gotten popular after January 6th. But he's not particularly doing well in the state of Pennsylvania, but he is leaning heavily on these networks that he built while you know traveling around the state as part of these you know anti-lockdown demonstrations. Meanwhile, you have other candidates in other parts of the country giving lip service to Christian nationalism. And so you actually see a variety of different versions of interacting with this sentiment all happening at the same time. There's kind of a laboratory of what approach to Christian nationalism will prove successful. And it's not clear which one will be successful. And it's not clear what will happen after the election results are come in, right? Because a lot of these folks who are appealing to Christian nationalism also were often people who believed in the 2020 election. Um, they make erroneous claims about it being you know, riddled with fraud, Mastriano among them. He was actually there at the Capitol on January 6th, by the way. He says he left when it got violent, but he was among those who were pushing these conspiracy theories about it. And so we're not sure if they will accept you know, their losses if they lose in November as well. But I'm really curious to see what happens if some of these lose or if all of them lose or if they all win, you know, how the Republican Party in general, but also, you know, the hardline Christian nationalists in particular, how they respond to the success or defeat of these various movements across the country come election day. One of the other major issues of this election is a referendum on the overturning of Roe v. Wade and how the country is going to react to losing the right of abortion. Abortion has always been a front and center issue. In fact, for many Christian voters, a singular issue. I'm curious about a couple of things. I'm curious about the intersection of anti-abortion sentiment and Christian nationalism. But I'm also curious, in some ways, there's been there's been a victory, right? The realization of the religious rights dream around overturning Roe. Is that sort of a bygone era now? You know, overturning abortion is in the rearview mirror, and now what's in front of us is more the dream of a Christian nationalist group and rather than talking about abortion all of the time. You know, discussing how exactly abortion plays into this election is tricky because, to your point, a lot of the religious rights goal has been pushing three or four wedge issues. One of the core ones has long been abortion. Overturning Roe v. Wade in particular was the seminal goal there. It has often been tied to the rhetoric of Christian nationalism. When they talk about a Christian nation, opposition to abortion is is part and parcel of that vision. But when Roe v. Wade was overturned, neither the Christian nationalists of today or nor the religious right of yesteryear had won the argument across the board with the American public. You know, when we'd see polls, we hadn't seen this groundswell of support for overturning Roe v. Wade. If anything, we've seen particularly the opposite since it's been overturned, but even in the lead up to that. And so that's 
put a lot of these groups in an interesting position where despite abortion being this linchpin and core issue, it is in some ways seen by analysts and, and party strategists as a liability going into November. You know, we saw this vote in Kansas in the last few months where you know a referendum on abortion resulted in not changing the state's constitution that would allow for potential abortion bans. And that included conservative voters pushing back against that. Meanwhile, you know, one thing we see is in polls outside of the members of the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints and white evangelicals, there's actually broad support for abortion access, you know, it being legal in all or most cases among religious groups across the spectrum. I think it's a really interesting question this year because you see people who, you know, just a few months ago were very much talking about abortion as a central figure when they would discuss it in the context of Christian nationalism. Some of them have abandoned that rhetoric heading into November because they're worried about it costing them their votes, particularly in states like Michigan, where there's another referendum on the ballot. So I don't think there's a clear answer to your question, quite frankly. Um, and I think we'll get some of those answers um, on election night. You wrote a book, American Prophets on the religious left. So where are they in all of this? How has the religious left responded to this emerging, escalating Christian nationalism movement? One of the fascinating elements of Christian nationalism, you know, when you hear people who espouse Christian nationalism or identify as Christian nationalists discuss what a Christian nation should be, sometimes they'll, they'll appeal to this idea that, you know, the majority of the country to this day, you know, identifies as Christian. And while that number is dwindling rapidly, you know, they say, you know, we're, we're the majority and we should be represented and what have you. What they don't talk about is that a whole lot of Christians do not agree with their vision for Christianity, much less the, um, their idea of creating a Christian nation. Some of the earliest and staunchest critics of Christian nationalism were, you know, religious liberals or just moderate Christians. I mean, it was in 2018 when the Christians Against Christian Nationalism group got started. You know, the Poor People's Campaign, headed by the Reverend William Barber, who, in addition to being, you know, a prominent religious activist, is actually one of the most prominent progressive activists in general in the country. Um, the Poor People's Campaign has long, on its website and at its events, said as a core component of their ideology that opposition to Christian nationalism and religious nationalism is a key element of their movement. And I think it really challenges and complicates the claims of people who are espousing Christian nationalism because they want to front this idea of a Christian nation, but in addition to any number of non-Christian Americans, you know, opposing it. There are millions of Christians who have consistently been opposing this, protesting outside of these events. Um, and, and I'll point out that, you know, when I was there on January 6th, I wasn't in front of the Capitol on January 6th. I was down the street because one of the only in-person counter-protests held in the district that day was fielded by a group of clergy. Other activists have been discouraged from doing that. But because these clergy had, had been personally affected by a lot of, you know, some of the more extremist wings of people that were showing up in um, Washington, D.C. that day. They had gathered around a Black Lives Matter sign that had been erected to replace one that had been torn down by Proud Boys. And as they stood there in that circle, people who were heading down to the Trump rally actually pushed through their prayer circle and mockingly reenacted the death of George Floyd. And then they went across the street and another church that was erecting Black Lives Matter signs, they, they ran up onto the church steps and did it 
again in front of cameras. And I just bring that up to point out that there's a constant conversation that has been happening between the religious left, for lack of a better term, or, you know, these religious progressives and liberals or just, you know, Christians who disagree with this sentiment and these Christian nationalists that doesn't happen at the top level, but is very clearly something that's deeply felt by any number of people who are filling the pews every Sunday. So I think that it's there. some of Christian nationalists fiercest and longest and staunchest critics um, throughout American history, frankly, but also to this day have been, um, you know, leaders in and among the religious left. Well, Jack, thank you so much for being here. And now as your editor, I have to send you away to work on your abortion voting article. I'm, I'm, I'm still working on it. I just have a couple of interviews left. I promise. <laughs> That's right. I know I've got an article of yours <laughs> sitting there that is in need of edits. So it goes both ways. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Big thanks to my colleague Jack Jenkins for today's episode. Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. This episode was produced with support from the Stiefel Freethought Foundation. This is Roxy Stone. Thanks for listening.